I'd like to draw your attention now, most importantly, to the word of the Lord as we actually find it in two passages this morning. First of all, our main passage, the verse that we'll be looking at out of Hebrews 11 is Hebrews 11 verse 4. And so if you want to put one finger there and then another finger in the story that the author assumes you're familiar with, but perhaps you're not, so we're going to read it together, is in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, the account of Cain and Abel. So I'll be reading Genesis 4, 1 through 10 first, and then Hebrews 11, verse 4. And before I do that, brothers and sisters, I remind you that we are to come to the word of the Lord trembling, because that's what we're about to hear read. It's not the word of men, it's the word of the living God. So may we come expectantly, expecting that by his spirit, he is sending it forth for our good and for his glory. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your word teaches us that the only way we can keep our lives pure before you is by guarding them according to your word. And so we pray that you would empower us now to seek you with our whole heart. Let us not wander from your commandments. Instead, by your grace, may we store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. For we acknowledge together humbly that you are blessed, Lord. Teach us your statutes so that with our lips we might declare all the rules of your mouth and may we delight in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and for his sake, amen. Well, if you've ever sat under the instruction regularly of a good teacher for an extended period of time, which I hope you can relate to that if you're a regular attender of Sovereign Grace, But if you've sat regularly under the instruction of a good teacher, then you know that one of the best practices or characteristics of a good teacher is that they don't just teach you the truth. 
They don't just teach you concepts in the abstract, although they do that. They also, in order to make that truth and that concept understandable and relatable to you, they then also provide you with examples and illustrations of what that truth actually looks like in action insofar as they are able. And given the fact that by the empowerment and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of the book of Hebrews is in fact a good instructor, this is exactly what we see him doing here. No doubt he's already explained to us the nature of faith, what faith is in and of itself in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 11. And then he goes on to tell us some of the content that we understand by faith in verse 3, the fact that God has created everything out of nothing. But now as we turn to verse 4, What he's doing is he's giving us examples of Old Testament saints who have walked by faith and not by sight. So that we can, first of all, rightly understand the nature of faith and what it does and what it receives. And also, so that we would be encouraged likewise by this example to walk in faithfulness ourselves. Why? Because God is faithful. The same God who was faithful to his Old Testament saints is now also faithful to us today. And so we should walk in the example of Abel as we see in his life all that faith does and receives. And that's really what the author of the book of Hebrews provides us here in Abel's example. He shows us three things in verse 4 that faith does and receives in Abel's life. First of all, we see that by faith, Abel worships. He truly worships God according to his will, God's will, and by faith. Second of all, we'll see that by faith, Abel is commended by God. First, his person as being righteous, and then his works being commended as righteous. His worship being commended as righteous as well. And then thirdly, we'll see that by faith, Abel still speaks. Though he is dead, through the testimony of Scripture and the eternal life that he received from Almighty God, he still speaks today. And what we'll see as we look at each one of these things that faith does and receives is we will be encouraged and challenged to persevere in the faith as well by Abel's example. That is why God has preserved Abel's example and has it inspired in the scriptures. Not just that we would say, wow, that's neat about Abel's faith, but this is what God is going to do in our lives by faith as well. So let's look first then at how by faith Abel worshiped. Look at verse 4 of Hebrews 11 with me again. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now let's hit pause right there because our first point just deals with that portion of verse 4. And before we jump into Abel's worship here, I want us to answer an important question. Why, as the author is providing us with this history of faith, where he starts in creation, why doesn't he then go to Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve are a well-known couple to this Jewish audience, these Hebrew Christians that he's writing to. So I think it's worthwhile asking the question, Why does he skip over Adam and Eve and go to Abel, righteous Abel? And quite simply, I think the reason that he skips Adam and Eve is because think of the context in which Adam and Eve are created. They receive their existence from God in a perfect world. And they themselves are not yet fallen because they haven't yet sinned. Now you say, why is that important? Because remember, 
as a good instructor, he's trying to use an example that we can relate to. And brothers and sisters, in case you're unaware of this, you were not born into an unfallen, perfect world, and you yourselves weren't created unfallen. You are conceived as a fallen creature. And so, therefore, the author of the book of Hebrews skips over Adam and Eve and goes to Abel because we can more readily relate with him. And this is a better example of what this faith in action looks like, even though I think Scripture is clear Adam and Eve actually had faith, which we'll look at perhaps in a little bit. But having said that, now we need to answer the important question of why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and not Cain's. Right, Because that's what verse 4 says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So what made his sacrifice acceptable and Cain's unacceptable? And in order to answer that question, we need to look at the matter, first of all, of Abel's offering, the stuff, what he actually brought as a sacrifice. And then second of all, we need to look at the manner of his sacrifice, of his worship the way in which he brought it. And as we look at each of these, this will help us answer the question. So first, let's look then at the matter of his worship. And before we even look at that, we need to establish a very important principle that is true on every page of Scripture. So I'm not even going to take the time to prove it from the text, because I think the Bible makes this abundantly clear anywhere. And here's the principle. God is to be worshipped as he commands to be worshipped. Every page of Scripture shows God is to be worshipped not as we think he should be worshipped, but as he reveals that he is to be worshipped. Or to put it negatively, God does not accept worship that he doesn't command. He reveals how he is to be worshipped, and that is the only kind of worship that he will receive. Now, why is it so important that we start there? I think it's important that we start there because then what that tells us is that Cain and Abel actually knew how they were to worship God, what they were actually supposed to bring. And what were they supposed to bring? They were supposed to bring, as a sacrifice, what Abel brought, a sacrificed, slaughtered animal. Now you say, how did they know that? Where in the text do we see that God reveals that to them? Well, think back to Genesis chapter 3, a chapter before Genesis chapter 4, what happens? Adam and Eve eat the fruit that God tells them not to. They sin. They rebel against him. God curses Adam, Eve, and the serpent. He gives the promise of this seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent, this promised one, this Messiah, and they have faith in that Messiah. And then do you remember what Adam and Eve do after the curses are pronounced and the promise is given? They're trying to sew together fig leaves to cover their shame and their guilt and their nakedness because of their sin. And how does God respond to that? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we read, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Your efforts, your fig leaves are not enough to cover you. I need to slaughter an animal. The first animal life needs to be taken so that you can have a relationship with me. And what's going on here? I think what's going on here is the Lord is showing more clearly What work this promised one, this seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, is going to look like. The fact that he is going to lay down his life for his people. Because what do Adam and Eve deserve since they sinned? God says, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Why don't they physically die right there on the spot? Because God graciously, mercifully provides a substitute. 
And so what has to happen? This animal needs to be slaughtered. Its blood needs to be spilled. And Adam and Eve are seeing and believing by faith that the promised one, the seed of the woman, will come and do this for them. He will be slaughtered for them. And so they're worshiping God in this way. Remember, Adam and Eve are priests in the garden temple of the Lord. And since they let this unclean animal, this serpent, into the temple that they were charged to guard, they're now kicked out east of Eden, and a cherubim is put there, and they can't come back. But I think that's likely where they're still worshiping God, still worshiping God by offering sacrifices. And so this is the context in which Cain and Abel grow up. They see their parents offering animal sacrifices, worshiping God this way, and Adam and Eve instruct Cain and Abel, this is how you worship God. And then when Cain and Abel come and offer sacrifices to God, what we're seeing is not that because Cain's a farmer, he offers what he has. And because Abel is a shepherd, he offers what he has. No, Abel's actually worshiping God the way God commands to be worshiped, and Cain is not. And so that's one of the reasons why the worship is rejected on Cain's part. He's not bringing what was commanded to be brought. He's not worshiping God the way God revealed that he is to be worshiped. And yet Abel does. So first, it regards the matter. He actually brought what God commanded, so his worship, his sacrifice was accepted. But second of all, there's the manner of their worship, the manner of Abel's worship. Abel comes in faith offering this sacrifice, even as his parents, Adam and Eve, did. He comes believing the promise of Genesis 3.15 that one is coming who will rescue him from his sin. And he knows that as he's slaughtering this animal, that this animal's blood is being spilled to typify what the work that the Messiah will come to do, that he will lay down his life. And so Abel's acknowledging, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and you're holy, and you should crush me for my sin. And yet this animal is pointing me to the fact that one is coming who will be crushed for my sin in my place. And so you've provided this gracious way for me to still have a relationship with you. And so now I know that I'm accepted and my worship is accepted because you've graciously forgiven me for the sake of this coming Messiah by the gift of faith that you've given me. Do you see this gracious covenant relationship that Abel has? He's offering this sacrifice by faith. In contrast to that, how is Cain coming? Cain's coming in unbelief. Think about it. Cain's coming thinking, I can pay God off. He probably has some vague sense of the fact, and his parents instructed him that God is his creator and that he is a sinner, but he doesn't believe that God is so holy and perfect and righteous that he can't satisfy God's wrath and put himself in God's good graces by doing good works. That's the lie that he believes, that I can come on my own terms And I don't have to have faith in some future Messiah. I can pay God off by my good deeds. You ever shared the gospel with someone like Cain? This is typically how the conversation goes. You show them their sinfulness from the law. And then what they say is, yeah, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. But see, even though I do bad things, I do more good things than bad things. And so they'll literally use this language that makes me want to pull the hairs of my beard out. They say, me and the big guy upstairs, we have an understanding. We have an understanding, so we're good. This whole gospel thing that you're talking about, it doesn't apply to me. Brothers and sisters, God is holy and just and demands perfection. And we cannot, by our own works, offer them to God and think that by that we can merit a righteousness by which we can stand before God. It's impossible ever since the fall. 
And so this is the way that Cain comes to worship the Lord on his own terms and in unbelief. Now, why is this truth important for the original audience? Why is the author of the book of Hebrews sharing this truth with his original audience? Well, think about what they're tempted to do. Remember, they're tempted to turn away from faith in Christ and new covenant worship to go back to the types and shadows of the old covenant. And you see what the author is saying is, listen, because God tells you how you're to worship him, that you're supposed to worship him in these particular ways in the new covenant, and you're to do it by faith, you're not returning back to the faith of your forefathers by going back to the old covenant types and shadows. Because God has commanded, those are gone and done away with because the reality that they pointed to, Jesus the Messiah has come. And so those are obsolete now. And so you're not returning back to the faith of Abel, if that's what you think you're doing. You're trying to worship and interact with God according to Cain. And how do things end for Cain? He is cursed and driven out from the covenant people of God. And so he's warning them, you can't do this. You can't turn away. And so there's this warning. But brothers and sisters and unbelievers here this morning, there's warnings here for us as well. Let me start with unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, do not be fooled into thinking that you can earn a right standing before God by your own works. You can't do it. Even if, by the way, you're doing the things that God commands, coming to church, reading your Bible, praying, if you're not doing those things by faith, looking to Jesus, the Messiah, and his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, it's waste. It's like filthy rags before a perfect holy God. So don't delude yourself. Instead, I plead with you, repent and look to Jesus, the one mediator between God and man, and believe in him. Now, for us as believers here this morning, what this reminds us and warns us of is that we are to worship God as he commands us to worship him. We're to worship him by preaching, by praying, by singing, all of these things. And so here's what I'm going to remind you of. If you see us do anything in the worship service that is not clearly commanded by Holy Scripture, you come and confront us about it and tell us to stop it. And if we can't prove to you that from the Scriptures this is actually something that we're supposed to be doing and we don't listen to you, then kick us out of the church. Remove us from office. We're leading you in worship of God that he is not commanded and that he will not accept. So that's the first warning. The second warning is don't think that by coming to church, reading your Bible, praying, fellowshipping with other believers, that just by simply going through those motions, that that is the entirety of your relationship with God. If for you it's just like checking off boxes, yep, I did that, yep, I did that, but you're not understanding by faith and looking to Christ, understanding that the Lord uses those means to commune with us, to strengthen our faith, to deepen our fellowship with one another, to change our character so that we look more and more like Jesus and our Heavenly Father, then you're misunderstanding why God has provided these means of grace. And so don't just go through the motions, but do them by faith, as God has commanded us to do, according to what his word commands. So we see first, then, that the author encourages us and the original audience to endure and persevere in the faith by worshiping by faith, according to God's word, and by faith. Second of all, we see that by faith, Abel was commended. Look at verse 4 again. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now listen to this in particular. Through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him, by accepting his gifts. 
we're going to stop there because we're going to look at the last portion of verse 4 at the last point. But we remember what happens next in the story. As Abel offers his animal sacrifice that slaughtered by faith, God accepts that. And as Cain comes in unbelief and offers the fruit of the ground, that which God has not commanded, God does not accept that sacrifice and that worship. But notice how the author of the book of Hebrews explains this. Look at verse 4 again. He, that is Abel, was commended as righteous. God commending him, God commending his person by accepting his gifts. And you get the same idea from Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. We read that God had regard for Abel, his person first, and then his gifts. So why am I trying to hammer this point? We need to understand that the only reason Abel's gift was accepted was because his person was first accepted as righteous. The only reason his works were accepted as righteous, secondarily, is because first his person was accepted as righteous. So then we have to ask the question, well, how was his person accepted as righteous? Based on his own righteous deeds? No. It's impossible for us to please God and get a right standing with him, to be justified in his sight by our own works. So then how is he commended as righteous? How is he accepted by God as righteous? By his faith in the coming Messiah. All the requirements of the law that Jesus fulfilled and the atoning death that he died on the cross, though that hasn't even happened yet, that is accounted to Abel by faith. So that whether under the Old Testament or the New Testament, God's people are always saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of the Messiah alone. Now Abel obviously didn't know everything about Jesus that we now do. But he was looking forward to his coming. And that's how his person was declared to be righteous. Not on account of his own righteousness, but on account of the Messiah's righteousness. And see then, because first his person was accepted, then his worship, his sacrifice was accepted. I hammer that because we flip that around, don't we? In the flesh we think, I've got to do these works first, and then God will declare me righteous. And then I can have that sort of relationship, but I have to somehow earn it. And the gospel is the exact opposite because Jesus, the Messiah, has earned it for you. Now, here's something that we need to ponder. We know from Genesis chapter 4 that it was obvious to both Cain and Abel that Cain's offering was rejected, his sacrifice was rejected, and Abel's was accepted. So we have to ask the question then, how did they know that? How did God make it clear that one was accepted and one was rejected? Well, the text doesn't explicitly tell us, does it? doesn't explicitly tell us how, but I think I have a pretty biblically informed likelihood of what happens. I think fire actually comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And you say, why would that be the case? Because that is the case everywhere else in the Old Testament. Again and again, we could spend a lot of time on examples, and I just want to give you enough to make the case, not go through all of them, because that would take a really long time. But think first of Aaron, when he and his sons are consecrated as priests to worship and serve God in the tabernacle. You remember they offer a sacrifice, and how does God show that he accepts it? Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. Or think about Solomon after he builds the temple. He builds it as God has commanded 
And then he prays this prayer of dedication, offers this sacrifice. And how does God show that he accepts this act of worship? Fire comes down from heaven and consumes it. Or perhaps the easiest example that probably first came to your mind when I talked about fire coming down from heaven. You remember when Elijah, the prophet of God, has a standoff with the prophets of Baal. And they're cutting themselves and crying out. And Elijah comes up and he douses the thing with water, builds a moat around it so it's soaking wet. And the fire comes down and not only consumes the sacrifice, but the rocks and the wood and starts lapping up the water in the moat. So what is God doing here? He's saying, I am the one true God, and you are my prophet, Elijah. So this is the biblical witness that again and again, this is how God shows that he accepts the sacrifices of his people. Now, why would the author of the book of Hebrews share this truth with these Hebrew Christians to encourage them to endure in the faith? Why does he make it clear that God made it clear that Abel's sacrifice was accepted, that his worship, his person and worship were accepted? Well, stop and think about it, brothers and sisters. If you're being persecuted for a really long period of time, and you might even face death, they haven't had to resort to the shedding of their blood yet, the author says elsewhere, but they may in the future. If you're going to face that potentially, and at the very least persecution at the hands of wicked enemies of God, you're not going to be able to last very long if you're not certain that God is for you and not against you. You're not going to be able to endure that very long. And you'll probably turn away if you're not sure that God has declared you to be righteous and accepts your worship. And so what he's showing us here is that they don't have to be in doubt about that. They can actually know that God has accepted them and accepts their worship. Now how? Are they to slaughter an animal and put it out and God will? No, because the Old Testament types and shadows are gone and done away with. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the once-for-all sacrifice has already been made on the cross. So then how are we to know today? How were they to know under the new covenant? And how are we to know that we have been accepted by God? Not by physical fire coming down from heaven, but by the spiritual fire of the Holy Spirit. I know that sounds really weird to you. Sounds a little charismatic, but let me show you this from Scripture. The Holy Spirit coming down upon us. Think about what John the Baptist says as he's baptizing people in preparation for Jesus' arrivals. The religious leaders come to him and say, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? What does he say? No, 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 I baptize you with water. There's one who's coming whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we see John the Baptist's prophecy fulfilled then on the day of Pentecost. What do we see happen in Acts chapter 2 verse 3 when Jesus, after accomplishing everything that the law required and receives the new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit, he pours that Spirit out on all flesh after receiving the Spirit from the Father. And what is the sign to people that the Spirit has come? There's a tongue of fire over their heads. The Spirit has been given. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. And what does he say? He says, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit testifies to us, you belong to the Lord. But there's not just this internal testimony, as precious and as important as that is. There's also, because we're united to Christ, 
and the Spirit dwells within us, and God is our Father, there's then fruit that issues forth in our lives that other people can see, isn't there? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Our lives, though imperfectly, are characterized by that fruit and we grow in the likeness of our Savior and are conformed to His image from one degree of glory to the next so that when people look at our lives, they see the character of our Heavenly Father as proof that we are in fact His children. We bear His resemblance. So this is how the Lord makes it clear to us, I accept you as righteous for Christ's sake. And for Christ's sake, I accept your worship so that whatever comes down the pike, even if you have to lay down your very life in order to be faithful, you can know with absolute confidence that you are mine and I am yours. I am your God and you are my people. There is no doubt about that. And so you see the pastoral import here and why he's reminding them of this truth that they might be encouraged to endure in the faith. So we've seen how by faith Abel truly worships, how by faith Abel is commended as righteous before God. And then lastly, let's look at how by faith Abel still speaks. Look at verse 4 with me one more time. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Well, tragically, we know the end of the story, don't we? I guess the end of the story is actually that that Cain is driven from the covenant people of God and out of God's presence. But before that happens, where we stopped reading at verse 10, what happens between Cain and Abel? We don't know what the conversation is, but Cain goes out into a field with Abel and in a fit of rage... Envy over his brother. We know that from 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. He raises his hand against his brother and slays him in cold-blooded murder. And yet, what does the author of the book of Hebrews say here about Abel? He says, by faith, though he is dead, though he was slain by the hand of his brother, he still speaks. What in the world does that mean? I think that means a couple of things that are going to prove to be really helpful for us even as they would have been really helpful for the original audience. First of all, I think that what this means, that though Abel is dead and still speaks, is that his death is a type of future persecutions that the church would suffer. In other words, I think that what the author of Genesis and the author of the book of Hebrews is showing us is this is what is going to characterize the relationship between the seed of the woman, godly offspring, believers, Abel, And Cain, the offspring of the serpent, the seed of the serpent, unbelievers. What's it going to look like? It's going to look like enmity between the two. So that there will be murderous envy and hatred on the part of the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. And so Abel's the beginning of that interaction. Now you say, where do you see that elsewhere in the Bible? You don't have to turn there, but listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23 Verses 34 and 35. He's speaking to the religious leaders. He's speaking to the seed of the serpent. And listen to what he says. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, 
And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The way that Jesus sees Abel is he is the first in a long line of martyrs that will be slain at the hands of wicked, murderous unbelievers. And Jesus is in that line as well, isn't he? Murdered at the hands of the Romans. He obviously laid down his life, unlike Abel here. Abel didn't say, hey, come kill me, Cain. But this is what is going to characterize the relationship between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But that's not the only thing that Abel speaks or preaches, even though he's dead. From the testimony of Scripture, we also see in Abel's death that God will exact vengeance upon those who murderously persecute his church, right? We don't even have to go to Hebrews to see that. We can see that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. What happens there in Genesis 4? I think Cain has probably hid Abel's body. He's like, well, nobody knows about it. And God comes and says, what have you done? You may think that you've hidden this, but your brother's spilled blood cries out to me. And what does it cry out? It cries out vengeance. It cries out justice. And the Lord will repay all mankind for the deeds that they do in the body. Jesus gets at this when he says in Luke 18, verses 7 and 8, And will not God give justice to his elect, to his people, to his beloved, who cry day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. The Lord will repay our enemies. We don't need to take vengeance into our own hands because vengeance belongs to him and justice will be served unless, like the Apostle Paul, our enemies repent and look to Christ. That's not the only thing, though, that Abel preaches here. He also preaches a word in contrast to what Jesus' death preaches. You say, what are you talking about? Well, turn one page from Hebrews 11 to Hebrews 12 and look at verse 24. Hebrews 12, verse 24 reads, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood, but Abel's blood also speaks a word. So what word does Abel's blood speak? We already talked about it. Vengeance, justice, this is wrong. And God will right every wrong because he is just and he is holy and he loves his people. And yet what's the better word that Jesus' blood cries out? Mercy. Mercy for God's enemies. No one took my life, Jesus says. I laid it down so that the enemies of God might be reconciled to their creator and know him as their father. And so, brothers and sisters, we deserve to have justice and vengeance brought down upon us for our sin. And yet, what's the greater, louder word that prevails? Jesus crying mercy over these because they belong to you, Father, and you've given them to me, and I will save them to the uttermost. And so that's the better word that Jesus' blood speaks in contrast to Abel's. And lastly, I think it's very important for us to understand that Abel still speaks though he's dead. Because when he died, as the first martyr in a long line of martyrs throughout church history, he entered into the joy of his master. Though his body was ravaged, deformed by his brother's hatred, and is now returned to the dust from which it came, 
his soul entered into eternal bliss where he beheld the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so to this day, he walks not by faith, but by sight, beholding the glory of God, worshiping with all the saints who have since passed and gone to glory. And so he still speaks today. I hope you can see the pastoral import of this, why the author would be highlighting this to his original audience. They're being persecuted, and some of them will likely die. And so what he's saying is you can be faithful even to the point of death because the God who faithfully sustained Abel through his death into the very presence of God will do the exact same for you. So continue to walk by faith and not by sight. Do you see why these truths are highlighted and how precious and valuable they should be to us? Because brothers and sisters, by faith, we now worship God as well. According to his word, that's our desire. And by faith, as we eye Jesus, our Messiah, and commune with our triune Lord out of gratitude and thankfulness, And by faith, we have been commended for Christ's sake as being righteous. And so our worship is acceptable to God. Can you think of a better motive for worshiping God than the fact that your worship actually pleases Him? Your feeble, look around at what we're doing here. In the eyes of the world, it's pretty pathetic. And yet it pleases your Father. And by faith, though we will one day be dead, we will still be alive spiritually before the face of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, receiving our eternal reward for Jesus' sake. And so we can be faithful until the end because we know that the Lord will be faithful to us. He's always been faithful to His covenant people, and He doesn't change. So don't doubt that for one second. Instead, by faith, look at your Savior. And insofar as Abel followed Christ, may we follow Abel until that great day when we see, not by faith, but by sight. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we hear the truth of what you've done for us, as we behold the glories of your character, we're humbled at the privilege that we have of being reconciled to you and your Son. We know we're not worthy. We feel our unworthiness even as we revel in the glories of what you've given to us by faith in your Son. And so we pray that you would cause us to continue to be faithful until the end, keeping an eye to our reward, which is fellowship forever, unbroken with you and your people for all eternity. We pray that you would cause us to endure and persevere until that great day. And may we make your gospel known, willing to lay down our very lives before we're quiet about it, that you might be honored and glorified in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.